This is Kevin C. from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for October 21st, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. The message is by Father Ron Baird. We have an interesting story. Um, if you recall, they've been, uh, the disciples have been traveling from up at Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon um, and have been traveling southward toward Jerusalem. And it's during one of these stints as they are walking that James and John come up to Jesus and say, Master, we have something we want to ask you. We want you to give it to us. Now, what do you think prompted them to add, say it that way? I mean, that sounds kind of audacious, doesn't it? I mean, because <laughs> he said, if you ask for anything in my name, I'll give it to you, right? So, but, but there's a little more to it behind it. So Jesus said, okay. You can almost see him going, all right. What exactly is it that you want? When you come into your glory, we want to be at your right and your left. Now, this isn't the, the beginning of this, you know, it's sort of, it's easy to look at scripture and think, oh, they just were walking down the road and suddenly this bright idea came into their head. Um, but that isn't the case. It's been going on for a while. If you remember uh, several Sundays ago, we heard the story about how they were walking a long way and that while they were walking, some of them were arguing amongst themselves as to who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus had to deal with that one. Well, now we have a much better idea who it was, don't we? Um, <laughs> At least who started it. But, but even beyond that, if you go back a little bit further, all the way to Caesarea Philippi, if you remember Caesarea Philippi, um, it was where Jesus asked Peter, who do, or asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Messiah. And, and as a result, he became named Simon Peter, uh, the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. And, and, you know, this was like this wonderful promotion because he was the rock. And then, of course, he tells Jesus, no, Lord, forbid it that, that you should be you know, harmed when we go to Jerusalem. And he immediately gets demoted and said, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, you, and then they do something interesting. They go up to the top of Mount Hermon, which is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transformed in dazzling white. And this is where this sort of becomes important. Do you remember who he took with him up there? Peter, James, and John. These were like his three closest friends. So if you think about it, Peter had his chance, didn't he? He botched it. And so you can sort of see James and John, their brothers after all, having a conversation about, well, what, who's going to take the lead? I mean, you know, somebody's got to be in charge around here to help Jesus out. And Peter obviously is incompetent, which of course we knew beforehand. But, and so they have been conspiring they wouldn't think of it as conspiring. They would think of it as trying to help. But they've been figuring out how it is that they can help. And they say, Lord, when you come in your glory, we want to be at your right and your left because we want to be in those positions. Now, why would they want to be at his right and his left? Share the glory? Nah. Although somewhat, but partly. It is to share something the power, and to protect Jesus. I mean, people in big positions always have gatekeepers, don't they? So that mobs don't come running to them, be it a secretary or 
or someone. And so they're going to be the people who sort of make sure that only the right people get to Jesus and he don't, they don't waste his time. So I don't think that their motives were purely um, you know, power-mongering or something. I think they also believed that they had Jesus' best interests at heart. And so Jesus asked them an interesting question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? And they say, oh, yeah, we can do that. (laughs) Whatever. It's not a big deal. And Jesus then says to them, well, I'll tell you what. You are going to drink that cup and you are going to be baptized with that baptism. But who gets to be at my right and left is not mine to give, but has already been decided by the Father. Now, what do you think James and John's reaction to that was? That's kind of a ripoff, isn't it? I just got told that if, you know, can you do these things? Like, okay, that's the test. If I can do those things, I'm in. And then, so, okay, you can do those things, but you don't get it. <laughs> I mean, what was that all about? They probably went away disappointed. And yet, in reality, the real conversation that is going on here is something that has gone over their head. They don't understand. What does it mean to be in Jesus' glory? That's the issue, isn't it? Because that's what they wanted to know. When does Jesus enter into his glory? On the cross. And so when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. No, you really don't. You don't get it. And, And the truth is, is that it was already appointed who would be at his right and at his left, wasn't it? There would already be someone who's right and left. And in fact, James and John would be nowhere, well, John maybe, but the others would be nowhere to be found. If, if John is indeed the beloved disciple, as many of us believe, then, then he would have been there, but he would have been the only one that didn't run. And even he had run earlier. And so, you know, he says, you don't understand what it is that you're asking. Do you think that if they knew that that was what it meant to be in glory on his right and his left, that they would have asked? Probably not. I mean, they might have volunteered Peter. Uh, we're do it. So why don't you take Peter and Judas up there with you? But instead, there's this whole conversation that's going around about them asking. And yet Jesus still says, but you will drink of the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized with a baptism that I will be baptized. But it is not for me to put you at the right or the left in glory. Did you ever wonder, did they argue among between James and John who got to be on the right and who got to be on the left? Because the right is the heir apparent generally, and the left is like the chief counselor, you know, like the prime minister sort of thing. <laughs> so I can imagine that John's going, well, I'm the older brother, I should be. <laughs> and so they really tell us a lot about ourselves, don't they? Very often when we go to God, we go to God asking him for something. We want him to help us with an illness, with financial problems, winning the lottery, fixing a relationship, you know, whatever those things might be. And I wonder sometimes, do we know what we are asking? Do we understand what the ramifications of if God just went, sure, snapped his fingers and it happened, what the cost would really be? 
you know, we rarely do. And we rarely even stop to consider it. We only consider the positive benefits for us as though it would have no impact upon anything else. Because we really just don't see, you know, beyond our own immediate life and our own immediate needs. And yet, all too often, we too would end up on his right and his left, and it wouldn't be at all what we wanted. So Jesus is, is, gathers the disciples together when he arrives, where they're going to be staying, to, to teach them again. It's not the first time he said it to them. He, just, he, he believes that method. If you tell them over and over and over again, eventually they get it. With them, it took a lot. Um, but <laughs> they, so he goes in and he says, look, the Gentiles, their leaders lord it over them. They, you know, live in great palaces. They have the finest things. I mean, and if they want something, you know, they just tell you and you go do it because they're the boss. But it will not be so with you. If you want to be great in my kingdom, then you have to be a servant. Now, that word servant in, in the, that's translated here is literally um, diakonia, from which we get the word deacon. And it means if you want to lead, first thing you have to learn how to do is to serve. Because if you can't serve, you can't lead. That's why in our tradition, it's always been the case that in order to become a priest, first you have to be a deacon. I remember when I was ordained, Bishop Reed took uh, those of us, there were five of us who were going to be ordained at the same time on a retreat for three days and talked a lot about that. He said, Tomorrow we're going to be ordaining you, or what, what the day he said this, to the diaconate. And I'm giving you a charge. During the year that you're a deacon, I don't want you to be a mini priest. I want you to be a deacon. Because if all that you do is bide your time, you will learn nothing. But if you spend your time serving, you will learn much. And you'll know a whole lot more about what it means to be a leader. When you do get there. And I didn't know it at the time, but he must have seen that I really needed this. Because he had assigned me to an inner city church. And I'd never been in an inner city church except for to visit you know, on Sunday. And so I was assigned to Calvary, which is in downtown Louisville. And, and I go in there. And it was a very odd situation for me because I, I was in the suburbs where church kind of happened whenever. Well, this was like 9 to 5. You know, and at 5 o'clock, you got done, you went home. And that was it till tomorrow. And, and you worked through the week. And I had Fridays and Saturdays off. And I came back on Sunday. And the only time they ever changed were on holy days. You know, high holy days where we had a special service or something. But apart from that... That was it. I kept thinking, this is really weird. And I thought, I wonder why he wants me to be here. Except that I learned. Because one of the reasons why you're there 9 to 5 and you have to be there is because most of the people that you serve during the week are not your congregation. They live somewhere else. Some of them lived two and a half hours away and drove in on Sunday. I think part of that was because the Louisville Box Society made up most of our choir. But... um, but I mean, if you people came from all over. The people you served during the week were the homeless. 
And so that was what I did most of the time. I worked with people, you know, who were homeless, people who, you know, were down and out, people who might not be homeless but really, you know, were sick and, and life had not treated them well and they needed help. We ran a food pantry out of there. And, and I learned a lot about what it was like to be in those positions simply from serving for a year in that. I wouldn't have learned that in the suburbs, by the way, I mean, because in the suburbs... You have some people like that, but you don't have the huge mass of people who come every day, day after day, where it never ends. Apparently, I really needed to learn how to serve, and, and I did. And so, if you want to be a leader, you have to learn how to serve. You don't automatically get to be a leader. And we're beginning to see a, a lot like that, because... All too often, we're moving back to the old days where the Gentiles are the ones you know, who are really setting the model for us. Did you know that it used to be that if you wanted to talk to the President of the United States, you just went up to him and talked to him? That's true. And it really wasn't that long ago, by the way. I mean, when um, Harry Truman was president... He would walk from the hotel where he stayed to the old executive office building because the White House was being renovated, and he would just walk along the street. And people would just chat with him on the way and talk to him. When Abraham Lincoln was president, he ran into a problem because the tradition always had been, up to the time he was president, that if you needed something from the federal government, you went and you knocked on the door of the White House. And you'd say, I'd like to see the president, please. And so depending on how many people were there, you get to go talk to them. The problem for Lincoln was that he had a secession movement going on, and the country was splitting half, and he had a war starting, and all these people kept wanting to talk about a job in the State Department. And so he finally said, I, can't, I don't have time. <laughs> you know, I, I, there's no way I can do all that. So what he did was he set up the Civil Service Administration so that he, he could have somebody who dealt with all these people who wanted jobs. And there were a lot of people who were mad about that. Who does he think he is? You know, does he think he's King George or something? You know, he's the president. He's not the king. What right does he have not to talk to us? And part of the reason for that in our, in our country's tradition was that there was a belief amongst the early people in our country that the further removed the leaders get from the, from the people the less they're going to understand what's happening. And you can almost see what happens. And it doesn't really matter, Democrat or Republican, by the way. It happens to everybody. I mean, they all don't get it. Imagine what it would be like if instead of going to fundraisers at $10,000 a plate, what they really need to do is go sit at somebody's kitchen table. Imagine what it would be like if instead of going to rallies that, you know, where there are all these people and you give your stump speech, if you actually had to sit and talk with people. Imagine what it would be like if both candidates had to go talk to the people who didn't agree with them and try to understand their viewpoint. But what happens is, is that because of danger in part, and part of it is just the system, we have removed our leaders so that they don't talk to us anymore. And they understand, you know, macroeconomics and things. 
but they don't understand what it's like. Do you remember when George H.W. Bush, I always felt bad for him. seems like a terrible thing to ask a president of the United States how much a gallon of milk costs. Do you remember when they asked him that? And he hadn't been in a grocery store in ages. I mean, the guy, <laughs> last one he was in was probably in China. But <laughs> and he didn't know. I think he said it was a dollar a gallon or something which made sense to me because when I worked at the grocery store, of course, I was in the 70s, it was a dollar gallon. <laughs> but, but that's part of the problem is that we've become removed. And it's true in business, isn't it? Try calling up the uh, CEO of Nationwide and getting an appointment with them tomorrow morning. Her. Is it a her? <laughs> Shows you how much I know. <laughs> and what's the likelihood of that? I mean, it won't happen. It becomes rare. And in fact, now access to people like that has become more and more significant, hasn't it? And because we get more and more isolated. That's why Jesus said it's not going to be like that. It may be like that in the world. But for you, for life in my kingdom, it will not be like that. If you want to be great, the first thing you have to do is be a servant. But he didn't stop there. He went on. He said, furthermore, if you want to be the master, if you want to be the one in charge, if you want to be the person who decides, if you want to be the person with the power, then be the person who's the slave. And he used the word intentionally, slave. Realize that the only reason you get the power is to serve others who have need. And he goes on to say, the Son of Man did not come into the world to rule it over them. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Now think about that, if you will. The Lord God, King of the universe, the creator of everything that is, the one who knows everything that ever was and everything that ever will be, the one who with a word can change the course of history didn't come to be served, but instead came to serve us. And we see his example when he finally does arrive in Jerusalem. He takes all of his clothes off except for his underwear and gets off on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet as a lesson about 